if you look at people with low HRV, their chances of recovering from their illness is way lower if their HRV is consistently low. Hey everyone, I'm Morgan, co-founder of Primal Kitchen and host of the Primal Kitchen podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with board-certified psychiatrist and neuroscientist, Dr. Dave Rabin, to discuss the importance of heart rate variability, psychedelics, sleep, and stress. Dr. Rabin has been studying the impacts of chronic stress on the body for over 15 years and is co-founder of the Apollo Clinic, which has been empowering clients to take control of their mental and physical health by tapping into our abilities to adapt and heal ourselves. Before we get started, a brief reminder that any and all opinions and views shared by hosts and guests on this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the view of Primal Kitchen or its affiliates or parent company. Hello, Dr. Raven. How are you? Hello. It's so nice to be here with you. Thanks for yeah. having me. We're super excited. I'm just pumped to talk all things heart rate variability, the Apollo Neuro, and this just wonderful world of psychedelics that seems to be I don't know, taking the world by storm. So um, before we get into it, why don't you just give us a little brief background on yourself? You're in California like I am, correct? Yeah, I'm here part-time, part-time uh, just, for, just for work. I grew up in Mill Valley, California, so we're just, Fun. we have a lot of colleagues here and we're back for work for a couple months and then we're in New York most of the time. In New York, got it. So you're one of those New York kind of Southern California people, or I guess Northern California. Where are you? Where Where's Mill Valley? Northern California? Oh, just north of San Francisco. Got it. Okay. Nice. Very cool. Um, and what led you into this like field of research and study? That's a great question. I, I think it started probably when I was really, really little. I used to just have very vivid dreams as a child, and I never really understood uh, what those meant or what they were, but they weren't always, they weren't always bad or good. Sometimes they were just experiences that I had where I was interacting with one of my siblings or a friend. And, you know, even as early as four, four, five, six years old, I remember hanging out with those people afterwards and then referencing something that happened in a dream. And they had no idea what I was talking about. And it was very real for me. And I realized immediately in those moments that those people weren't actually there. That was something that happened in a dream. And it was really interesting to me to just remember, you know, having those experiences, the dream experiences and feeling how real they felt. And so over time, you know, as I got older, occasionally I would, you know, have a nightmare or something like that. And I'd come to my parents and I'd be like, well, what does this mean? You know, what are we, what are we experiencing in these dreams in the way that I could articulate it as like a, you know, five or six year old and and they would say, you know, naturally, like many parents do, uh, dreams aren't real. You know, they can't hurt you. Don't worry about it. Um, but they felt so real and I kept having them. And so over time, I really started to think about what is, you know, if 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 our my parents are using this word real and they feel, dreams feel real, but, you know, real life also feels real, waking life, what is real? And I think it started to just encourage me to question the question the way we use words what they mean and sort of what is the you know the meaning of of life and why we're here and so from a very young age i was just really interested in dreams and consciousness and from whatever i knew of it and over time i started to explore that more and get really interested in in that area of research and and the mind i just started you know reading stuff and whatever i could find and um and over time i you know started to notice that there were certain things we were experiencing in our day-to-day lives that um, led us to start study or, or start to become interested in, you know, what we now call resilience. And resilience relates directly to HRV because now heart rate variability, HRV is our best 
biometric of resilience that we can measure easily through the skin. Um, but at the time we didn't really have that measure and resilience was this idea of, you know, how do you bounce back more quickly from stress? What is it that, you know, because studying dreams is really hard. Studying altered states of consciousness is really hard. Meditative states. And that didn't really also become popular until the last 10 years or so, other than through the field of biofeedback. And, um, and so as I started to look into this area, you know, I started to look more into the resilience and chronic stress aspects and, you know, what drives us to excel as human beings and really achieve close, something close to what we could consider our opt, our, our optimal potential or, you know, fullest potential in this life and what kinds of things set us back and how do we make, how do we make sure that we're curating and cultivating, um, nourishing, you know, environments that really help us to safely achieve those goals and realize them for ourselves. Um, and then of course, in 2012, 2013, I started to be exposed to more of the psychedelic medicine research and research around technology and wearables and how these were impacting people's health. Um, and then that led me into that research area and starting to look at how wearables and psychedelic therapy could help with help people with uh, very severe mental illness like PTSD and how we could leverage those tools to really improve the way we deliver care. Um, and of course, psychedelic medicines are very interesting because they chemically induce an altered state of consciousness that allows us to look beneath the surface or under the hood of our minds, and which is similar to a dream. And so I kind of found myself coming full circle into, uh, you know, studying consciousness again as it became easier through these drug-induced psychedelic states. And, and then uh, Apollo came out of that research from the University of Pittsburgh as a way to start to understand how we could induce states of changing, you know, states where we change our feeling, we change our energy level, um, but without drugs. And how do we tap into some of the ways that we think psychedelics are working to give people some of those benefits on the go, um, just using technology. And now here we are. So cool. So many questions. So heart rate variability, how do you measure it? So there's, so the main way to measure heart rate variability is when first heart rate variability for those who aren't that familiar with it, because it's a term that is often confused um, for people because we don't have a lot of education about it. Even in the medical world, you know, I didn't really learn about heart rate variability until I was reading about it on my own. It's not used that much as a measure in the clinic or in the, you know, in the course of seeing patients in most specialties. Uh, so we didn't really learn much about it. But what it is, it, it arose from the field of biofeedback, uh, which is where it's like the original uh, system that measures the impact of meditation and then trains the body to medit enter meditative states more easily through breath. And the way that works is you connect, you know, this started in the 60s, and you connect your heart, your, your body to an EKG, electrocardiogram machine, which measures heart rate and heart rhythm. And then it, with the little blips that you see um, that we all know, and then you connect yourself to a respiratory monitor and you'd watch on a screen your respiratory pattern, which is a slow, slower rhythm, and then your faster heart rhythm together. And over, if you're asked to match those rhythms, even if nobody tells you how, within about 90 seconds, 95% of people match their rhythms and they match them and they match them to about six, five to seven breaths per minute. And that matching is really interesting because that it, it uh, corresponds to a state in the body where heart rate variability goes way up. And uh, even in a short time, as little as three to five minutes, heart rate variability goes way up 
like one and a half to two times what it normally is for many of us. And we, most people who do these exercises feel better. They just say, I, I feel calmer. I feel more relaxed. I feel less anxious that often get mood benefits. Um, and what's, what's interesting is that the more people say they tend to get these good, these positive feelings, uh, the better their HRV is. So there's a correlation there between heart rate variability going up and the meaning as a measure of the, the quality of the function of the heart and the body's ability to adapt to stress and positive feelings and emotions and control over how we feel. And that always kind of stood out to me because heart biofeedback is this old, old technique that um, has given us tons of data over the last 50 years and really discovered the meaning of HRV, which is the, the difference in time between each beat over time. So as that difference in time changes over time, our body is adapting to the environment. So for instance, if you have a low heart rate and meaning like 40 beats per minute, and you have, that means there's more time between each beat than if you had an 80 beat per minute heart rate, right? It would be 80 beats per minute is half as much time between each beat. And so if there's half as much time between each beat, then there's less difference between the time between each beat. And then, so, so as heart rate goes up, we know high heart rate on a regular basis is a negative correlate to health. It's a sign that if we have high resting heart rate, that our, that our health is, our, our, and our cardiovascular health may not be as good. And that is, that, that corresponds with a low heart rate variability. And when we're maximally adapted to stress, when we're trained for resilience, we're doing, we're getting good sleep, we're doing our deep breathing exercises, our meditation, our self-care, and we're well recovered and our body's in good shape, our HRV goes up and our heart rate comes down. And this is really interesting because this has become one of the most predictive measures of health and helps us understand when somebody's going to perform really well and close to their peak and when somebody's going to maybe need an, uh, some time to relax and recover before they can get back to their peak. And when you say perform, do you mean like athletically or mentally or all of the above? All of the above. It's just the functioning. It's just the general functioning of the body. So it's 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 a it's a measure and one of our first and most interesting and important measures of how we respond, how we will respond to stress. So it's very predictive, which is really interesting. And it's not that there's a specific number necessarily that we want to look for. It's really about what what is our normal heart rate and heart rate variability normally? Are we like in the twenties to forties range? Are we in the forties to sixties range? And what is it at rest? Because at rest is when it has to be calculated um, accurately. And because everything we do changes HRV, literally moving, thinking about stress, thinking about anything, uh, you know, going to the bathroom, standing up, moving our arms around this conversation, it's all changing our HRV. And so HRV has to be measured at rest, um, which is the way when we measure like a resting heart rate. So, so ultimately over time, as we, start to measure that, we get a baseline, which is what we, what we call the, the measure of what we normally are most of the time. And then we want to, we want to see that trend up over time. Um, so as long as, so as long, so that means that if our, if we wake up one day or, you know, we see that over a few days, our heart rate variability is lower than our baseline. It's lower than it normally is. Then that would suggest that we are not recovered and that we need more rest and we're not going to perform at our peak. We're not going to perform consistently. We're more likely to make mistakes physically, mentally, 
Um, there's been studies showing that people with low HRV have a higher athletes have a higher rate of injury when they're performing at, uh, under low HRV conditions. Um, they're less likely to win when they're starting, um, in the collegiate level and NCAA. Um, there's a lot of really interesting research on that. And then on the cognitive side, having a low HRV makes us perform worse cognitively as well and emotionally. So there's a lot of really interesting data there about how we can start to understand these metrics as a sign of our health and how to improve it over time. And so how does someone like me measure my heart rate variability? Is it more just like a resting heart rate measurement and I, my Apple Watch does this or how do you measure it? Yeah, there's a few different ways. I think the most important thing to know is that the most accurate and, and clinically validated way to measure HRV, the way we do it in the hospital or the lab is we do it with uh, electrical leads on the chest and uh, as an EKG over three minutes at rest. And that is the best way to measure heart rate variability. That's the standard, the standard of measurement. So everything other than that is prone to error and variability. So the aura ring that you see me wearing here, yeah. it's a great measure of heart rate variability. It's probably one of the more accurate ones because you because it has a really nice algorithm that waits for you to stop moving for three minutes or so and then starts measuring and then averages all of that over time. And so you get a pretty accurate measure if you look in the morning, assuming your ring is properly fit to your body, because if it's too loose or too, too tight, it will affect the measurement. If you change the finger you're wearing it on over the course of the night, it can change, or, or over the course of how you use it, it can change the measurement. So you want the consistency of the fit, of course, and you want the consistency of the, of the finger that you're using to measure it on. But ultimately, if you do the same kind of, if you wear it in the same finger and you have the right size ring over time, you can see your HRV in the morning and it will and it will show your average and your peaks at night. And you want your peaks to be fairly high uh, because sleep getting high high HRV at night is a great measure of how deep how deep and restful our sleep is. And then and then during the mornings we want it to, you know, it's gonna come back down to somewhere for most people between like 20 and a and hundred. And we want to just trend it up over time. And the Apple Watch can do it too. Um, but again, these are consumer wearable devices, so they, they have a little bit of, uh, error in them. And so, you know, unlike the lab where you can, I can measure your HRV in the lab now, and then I can measure HRV in the lab three minutes from now with very, very high degree of accuracy with an EKG, we can't do that precise measurement in the real world. And so what we have to do is we have to track it over weeks to months to get accurate data. So our date, there has to be, there's a grain of salt that we have to take with our daily data with HRV and with sleep metrics from consumer wearables. But as you track them over weeks and months, you can use them as really valuable tools to just trend yourself up and know when you're having a little bit of a hard time and you need to take a little more time to recover. Interesting. Okay. And so what does the Apollo Neuro do? Well, so Apollo Neuro is a wearable that you can wear anywhere on your body that gives the benefits of soothing touch to the body through sound waves. And what's interesting is that when we were studying HRV, we realized that people who have PTSD, especially on the more severe end, and people with depression and, and anxiety disorders oftentimes, and other things like insomnia and chronic pain, if you look at the literature of these people where they've actually studied their HRV, it's almost always low and, and lower than other people in the population. And if you look at low, those people with low HRV, their chances of recovering from their illness is way lower if their HRV is consistently low. 
And so this was really interesting because a low HRV is a sign that our bodies are perceiving threat from the environment or they're perceiving stress and, and effectively lack of safety. And when you look at the techniques that work for these people, for instance, biofeedback, like we talked about earlier, which is, you know, this, you know, modern meditation, computerized meditation technique that works really well for people with PTSD when they practice it, um, we see HRV go up and we see symptoms go down. So there's clearly a correlation between HRV and how good we feel and how likely we are to recover from certain, if not most, mental illnesses. So seeing this pattern, we said, well, what boosts HRV? We know breathwork and biofeedback do it. We know meditation. Um, we know meditation does it. We know mindfulness does it. We know that yoga, soothing touch, and soothing music do it. But almost all, and psychotherapy, like just having like probably good empathic listening, you know, experiences with somebody who's just listening to you non-judgmentally will do it because it helps us feel safe. And so what if we could, so we started to think, you know, if all of these things are targeting the same safety pathway, and then of course I, you know, I did my psychedelic therapy trainings as well and realized that those medicines are molecularly amplifying the safety pathways in the brain. So, but they all require help and they all a lot of work to, to practice these techniques, right? Psychedelic medicines are expensive, requires two therapists. They're not all legally available yet. Um, there's other, you know, the breath work, the meditation, yoga, et cetera. There require lots of practice and coaching oftentimes, and you have to take time to learn how to yeah, do it. And commitment and like motivation. And if you're someone who's already kind of in a depressed state, I think it's like probably maybe even harder to motivate to it's, it's, ex yeah. it's extremely challenging. It's like asking, in some ways it's asking people to sign up for failure because we're giving them tasks that actually require a lot of concentration and a quiet mind. But as soon as you, if you have anxiety or depression, you quiet your mind and you don't have the training to navigate what's going on and you're on your own, then what happens? You just get a flood of negative thoughts coming into your brain. And then you're like, well, I don't want to meditate anymore. This doesn't make me feel good. Yeah, I can't do right. this. I'm terrible at it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then it just creates a negative, more negative thought loops. So we were trying to navigate around this and help people, you know, effectively, if we could tap into the neurobiology of safety, could we start to restore control for people so that they could feel like they could be in control of their thoughts and their feelings more effectively? And we figured out that all of these techniques I just mentioned to you do it, but they have to be... They, they have to, you know, they require attention or time or a lot of effort. Um, and music and touch don't really. And that was really interesting to us because music can, can reliably change the way we feel pretty quickly. Just like a hug or somebody we like holding our hand on a bad day, you can get into your car, you can walk into a room when you're stressed out. And if you hear your favorite song playing on the radio and the ambiance is right, you will be almost immediately feeling better. That's really interesting, a really interesting effect. And so we started to explore that and we effectively at the University of Pittsburgh mapped out the entire nervous system pathway from the skin to the brain, from the ears to the, to the brain, and saw that a lot of what's happening is, is there's a targeting of and an increase in activity in the emotional cortex that senses positive emotion when we experience positive music and soothing touch that suppresses our amygdala, which is that fear center of our brains that's blasting off too much when we're detecting threat from the environment. And our amygdala is like that reptilian brain that we call, we call it. It's a very old part of the brain. It doesn't know the difference between emails and a bear outside our cave. It's just doing its thing. It's just like, hey, there's something stressing me out. So let's, let's fire off. And so it requires a certain emotional regulation and training 
to teach us how to regulate that part of our brains, the amygdala, and tell it, hey, it's okay, bud, we're safe. We don't need to, like, this is just traffic. This is just emails. Like, we're not in a survival threat right now. So we don't need to trigger all of our survival systems to go off. And so in seeing how those techniques worked, we, re- we, we thought, well, what if we could create that in a wearable? right? What if we could take the safety benefits of soothing touch that you get from somebody giving you a hug or your, our mom's holding us when we're kids and swaddling us to, to help us feel better. And what if we could give that to people? And if we gave it to people in stressful situations, would they perform better? Would they perform cognitively better? Would they recover more quickly? Would their HRV go up? And effectively what we saw in double-blind randomized placebo-controlled crossover studies at the University of Pittsburgh between 2017 and and currently is that Apollo does in fact reliably improve heart rate variability within as little as two to three minutes in a highly controlled laboratory setting after or during physical or mental stress. And it improves recovery and it improves cognitive performance up to 25% within three minutes which is pretty interesting because 25% cognitive performance improvement is close to what you get with an amphetamine uh, and within just three minutes. And so you think about like the impact of calming the body under stressful situations is actually probably a lot more powerful than we ever necessarily realized. And so these studies that are now starting to come out in peer-reviewed journals are really interesting because this is the first time that we've ever had something, a technology that works for us that you can just strap on your body and it'll improve your HRV and our resilience for us um, without really having to do much just by tapping into this highly evolved sensitive touch receptor system that we have for safety. Wow, so interesting. That's crazy. That's like, everybody should be wearing these things, huh? I mean, is this like only beneficial if you've had like PTSD or depression or is this beneficial for just like the everyday person who has stress in their life? Yeah, it's definitely great for anyone who's struggling with stress or who has trouble sleeping in particular or okay, who's so struggling. Okay, so sleep's a big one. Sleep's a big one. Um, people have trouble focusing or trouble calming down. I think Apollo, you know, it really helps with that. Apollo is really interesting because it's a, it's a transition tool. So it helps us adapt to change, right? U- ultimately, you know, what we see is that the most challenging moments that people experience during the day whether you have a mental illness or not, is that's diagnosed or not, is uh, waking up, going from sleep to wake and getting about the day and getting our brains and bodies active and going from being awake to being asleep, transitioning from work to home, transitioning from stress to meditation. You know, all of these different state transitions are really challenging for us. And so it doesn't really matter if you have a mental illness or not. And we discovered that because at, when we did our first clinical trials, you're always supposed to start clinical trials in healthy subjects because people who are ill who are ill and struggling always, or not always, but generally want to get better uh, a lot. And so that can introduce a um, variable that, you know, confounds the results. So we start all our trials in healthy subjects, which is what the most of the trials on our website currently are. And we have a lot of ongoing trials in mental mental health populations as well for PTSD, ADHD, traumatic brain injury, and, and several others. Um, but as we started to continue to test this and we made wearable prototypes, we actually wore it ourselves. We gave it to all our friends and family. We actually tested it on 3,000 people in the real world between after the first trials completed between 2018 and 2020. And most of those people, I would say 90% of those people did not have a diagnosis. And what was so interesting was that those that 
we, you know, we tracked all those people's data. They voluntarily shared their information with us and how they were experiencing Apollo. And what was so fascinating was that people, most people who benefited from it, but who were not, were not, were not people who were sick. Um, they were just people who wanted a little more sleep and they wanted a little more focus during the day. And those are the people who are drinking less alcohol because they had a tool and they're drinking less caffeine because they have a tool that gives them energy. And so it really helps you and using less sleep aids because they're having something that helps them fall asleep at night. And so it's interesting to see that um, people are just using this as a tool in their day to day. And, and when we were testing it on ourselves, we also didn't have diagnoses and you know, we're just really, really stressed out working a lot. Uh, running a startup, you know, work in the hospital, you know, double time shifts. Uh, and it was just a lot uh, to keep up with. And this was, we realized this was just a game changer for us and in all of my colleagues. And we just couldn't make it a medical device because if you make it a medical device, it just makes it harder for people to access um, if it's if it's only a medical device. So we decided in, in that time frame we were testing it on ourselves and our friends and family to make it that this had to be a consumer device. It had to be accessible to people. Um, and that, and that's kind of this new paradigm that we're seeing that's really interesting in 21st century medicine, which is how do we, how does consumer technology and, and science, especially scientifically validated consumer technology and, and medical treatment overlap, right? And, and where do those two come together? Because the more, obviously, the more we can translate the greatest discoveries of science into things that don't require a prescription or a doctor to give you access to, then the more easily you will be able to heal yourself rather than relying on us to do the job for you. Because ultimately it has to come from the person who wants to be healed. And that's even what Hippocrates said. So, so it's an exciting time for medicine in that way. Yeah, super cool. And so is it, do you wear it all, all day long? Um, you can. I think most people, what we recommend and what we've seen from the studies is people get the best results with Apollo when they wear it for at least 90 minutes during the day and at least 90 minutes at night. And that helps regulate our circadian cycle or, you know, our sleep and wake cycles and regulating our sleep and wake cycles and making sure effect, effectively, relatively simple concept that we have energy when we want to have energy and we are able to sleep when we want to sleep, right? That's all it is. That's the fun. That's the most fundamental piece of, of oh, all, all health is based on that thing. And when you say at night, do you mean sleeping or do you just mean like evening time? Both. Okay. And got it. yeah, and, and and so with what's really interesting about Apollo is you can just schedule it in the app, and then and it has seven modes for all different energy states during the day. There's energy and wake up, which is kind of like espresso. And there's social and open, which is kind of like a creative social flow for like going out and doing things with other people. There's clear and focus, which is giving people that kind of amphetamine-like effect of dedicated, sustained focus. Those are all kind of energizing. Then there's rebuild and recover, which is neutral energy. It's like taking five minutes of deep breaths. Then there's meditation mindfulness, which is take, taking 10 or 15 minutes of deep breaths. Um, then there's relax and unwind, which is kind of feels for a lot of people like a, a glass of whiskey or a cannabis indica. It's a very intense wind down, um, or and not intense, but like a deep relaxation. And then there's sleep and renew that people use when they actually get into bed. And so relax and unwind, as an example, would be what people use for half an hour to an hour before they get into bed to prepare to fall asleep when you actually get into bed. And then sleep and renew when people get into bed. And that helps give people deeper, longer sleep. And we've seen in our trials that people using this in that way um, over the course of three months are seeing up to 30 minutes more sleep a night. That's concentrated and deep in REM to the order of like 19% more deep sleep and 14% more REM sleep over three months. So that's, that's as much benefit in terms of 
parasympathetic tone that we get from adopting a new exercise routine or a new meditation or yoga routine in the studies. So just by soothing the body with some a little bit of touch, we can give ourselves access to some of these benefits from that we would have to normally spend thousands of hours meditating to get access to. Yeah. And do you wear it on any, like you said that you can wear it anywhere. So like arm, where do you, where do you recommend? I usually wear it on my ankle or okay. my chest. Um, we have a clip and a couple different or three different size straps. So you can wear it on your ankle, arm, wrist, chat, clip it onto your clothing. Yeah. It works. It works anywhere on the body because it works through the touch receptor system. Got it. So it doesn't need to be in any particular place. It doesn't need to be directly on the skin. Um, it can be through clothing. As long as you can feel it gently, then you're good. Can I put and it on my two and three-year-old? My two can. and four-year-olds. I mean, we, we recommend just, you know, as any device that's small that you, it ha, you know, you use adult supervision with small yeah. children. I mean, it's not that small. Like the, it's, yeah, but kid, I hear kid, you. But kids will put things in their mouths. They will. They, they put and, everything in their mouth. You know, I believe yeah. me. No, no one yeah. knows this more than me right now. I hear you. So interesting. I love it. Very but, cool. Know, par parents love using it with their kids because kids are exquisitely sensitive to touch. They're actually more sensitive to touch than we are because they were closer to it, right? Interesting. And, and so yeah. a lot of parents are using it with their kids, not only in in school to help them focus and and you know function better, but also to wind down afterwards and go to bed. It's awesome. I was kind of kidding, but I'm fascinated that people, this is like a great tool. Um, super cool. Okay. So tell me about the world of psychedelics. What is going on here? What's the difference of microdosing? What do you see that's most effective? It sounds like it's similar kind of benefits to what some of the things we've been talking about, heart rate variability and your wearable, but give me the lowdown on the psychedelics thing. For sure. Yeah. I think it's a, it, it, again, also a commonly misunderstood area of research. Um, psychedelic medicines have been around for thousands of years. They've been used in tribal culture for many, many thousands of like years. Like we're talking ayahuasca or what are ayahuasca what are, okay. and psilocybin mushrooms. So we, you know, el, you know, the um Eleusis in, in ancient Greece, you know, they were their people were consuming these usually mushrooms or or psychedelic plants that grew in the jungle of some yeah. variety. I lived in South America, side note, for a little while, for like two years. And my friends in Ecuador one night did, drank this tea. It was called like Floripania. I don't know what it, Angel's Trumpet. Do you know tea? Made mm. from, it's like a hallucinogenic mm -hmm. thing. I, I don't know what that's like compared to other folks, but it was like, I didn't do it. I'm too much of a control freak. I wasn't like down for the experimentation, but it seemed like it was a trippy experience, I guess. Anyway. Yeah. That, that's another plant that has been okay. used, um, for those experiences yeah. by, by different cultures you okay. know, over, over generations. But ayahuasca is maybe like the most famous one or it's probably one of the more famous ones, but, but I mean that and mushrooms. and mushrooms, right? Mushrooms grow everywhere all right. over the world in moist environments and especially in cow dung. So anywhere there's cattle, you know, there are psilocybin mushrooms. And that's really interesting because, um, there's a lot of now evidence in neuroscience about how a lot of these, these plants, uh, and the compounds in the plants like psilocybin and some of the compounds in ayahuasca and other psychedelic compounds that are more further further away from plants like ketamine, which is the only legal psychedelic in the U.S., um, are uh, all working in a very similar way. And we didn't really know this for a long time because they're confusing because they all have different molecular structures, right? If you look at all these different psychedelics, some of them are look like serotonin molecules and some of them look like DMT, tryptamine molecules, both of which are secreted in our brains. 
DMT is dimethyltryptamine that comes from our pineal gland. And this is a neurotransmitter molecule that gets secreted around the times we're born and when we die and probably in our dreams and deep meditative states. And it's known to be a potently psychoactive hallucinogenic molecule that we make ourselves and all living things make, which is really pretty interesting and not well studied. And serotonin is one of our major molecules responsible for mood regulation and emotional sensitivity um, and meaning making in our brains and and many other things. And so these two uh, molecules in that are natural to us and the entire living world, uh, especially animals, are also directly impacted by psychedelic medicines and related to the psychedelic medicines in terms of molecular, molecular structure that we introduce into the body, which is very, very interesting. So why this is interesting is because all these medicines and molecules, no matter how they work, they are all considered to be non-specific amplifiers of awareness. So what that means is that we are normally aware of about this much of the iceberg that's sticking out of the water, right? And then there's, and, and that's like the conversation that you and I are having right now. We're aware of each other. We're aware of each other's voices, our presence, maybe the audience, right? Where there's a certain amount of awareness and things we're paying attention to. That's like this much of the iceberg. But then there's like a hundred million times more iceberg under the surface of the water. And we're not aware of that because if we were at all times, we'd be really, really distracted and it would probably be very hard to have this conversation. And so what are some of the things that would be under that iceberg? I'm just curious. Like, It could be anything as simple from the feeling of your clothes on your skin that we tune out to the, to the feeling of uh, memories of childhood, right? To the feeling of... Um, thoughts of what's going on in other parts of the world, what our parents and family members might be thinking about us, any anything, literally anything we've ever experienced in our whole lives gets stored in our brains and bodies. And then if it's not relevant to, immediately relevant to our day-to-day lives, it kind of gets stored beneath the surface of, of, the, of the water, right? So when we meditate, when we enter into dream states, when we take a psychedelic medicine or enter into any kind of altered state of consciousness, what's happening is that that surface of the water starts to get become clear in different areas. And we start to be able to see through the surface to what's underneath. And we may not be able to get a whole picture of what's underneath, but we can start to see certain parts of what's underneath and certain parts start to reveal themselves to us. And the reason why I brought dreams into this again is because psychedelic states are not unique to psychedelic drugs. They're actually states of just revealing our mind to us. And psyche means mind and delos means to reveal. So we're really talking about entering into a state of mind, whether there's drugs involved or not, that reveal parts of our minds to us. So think about the surface of the water starting to clear in certain ways. We're able to look beneath the surface. And then all of a sudden, there's parts of ourselves that become we become aware of that we weren't necessarily aware of before. Like, for instance, how... Some, you know, uh, some way that somebody treated me when I was a child, like first day at school, getting picked on, which happens to a lot of kids, could shape, and I've seen this in many of my clients, could shape the way we still think about ourselves this day over 30 years later. Yeah. 
Gosh. And and How that, are we even functioning, man? It's like so intense. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a lot, right? But but yeah. part of the it, it also reveals the the true beauty of humanity to us in its entirety. Because the reason we're still functioning is because we are evolved to be the most adaptive creatures on the face of the earth, other than the planet itself. Human human okay. beings are our specialty is adaptation. I love that. I did not know that. Okay, yeah, that's. I mean, we have a lot of skills that we can that we can be good at, but adaptation is the number one thing that we do best that's and and it's not just individual adaptation to our own self stress and our own you know trauma and challenges that we face in our lives it's collaborative communal adaptation right it's how we overcome pandemics and and droughts and fires and these dramatic threats from the environment to our survival is that we we band together and we work together to collaboratively adapt to and get through the situation. We would not have overcome any of the incredible tra- tragedies that have happened over the last 5,000 years had we not worked together. Um, and that's why all other animals probably became extinct from the similar challenges. We, on the other hand, have actually figured out a way to work together. And if you look at the brain of, of humans and other collaborative animals like the higher order bonobo chimpanzees and, and animals like that, they have a particular part of the brain that's highly developed called the insulate cortex, which has the parts of the brain for empathy, feeling what other people feel. That's a collaborative adaptation part. Introspection, looking inside ourselves and feeling for ourselves and, and sort of like doing, like being able to self-reflect. And then interoception, awareness of the body, being able to feel and think about our own body, feeling our heartbeat, feeling our breath, being aware of those feelings. Those three stripes of the brain and the insula are the most highly evolved in us over any other animal for the most part. And and that is, I think, testament to the fact that regardless of how good we may have thought, been taught we are at adapting to uh, adapting to stress or, you know, co- collaborating with other people or being able to use empathy as a tool, it's in there, right? We evolved this part of the brain it's it's we're born with it by nature of being human so we might as well start using it i love it okay so where do psychedelics come into play well so psychedelics are literally molecularly amplifying that part of the brain activity in a positive way if we take if we bring a safe positive environment into the experience psychedelics again are non-specific amplifiers of awareness so if you bring disorganized disorganized thinking if you bring a lot of fear or threat or you know discomfort or lack of safety feelings or you're not in a safe environment going into one of those experiences they can amplify that too because they're amplifying your awareness of whatever it is that you're taking in right and so so the the reason why we spend so much time in training and learning how to curate and a safe uh, container, what we call a safe container for people to have whatever experience they can have uh, on the healing journey is so that when stuff comes up that might be uncomfortable or challenging from the past that they are re-experiencing in the psychedelic state, they feel safe enough to approach it and to not run from it and to not resist it. And that is where all the healing comes from. It's effectively just being safe enough to be vulnerable with ourselves. And that vulnerability is the fertile ground for healing. And so psychedelic medicines for a certain amount of time in the right environment with highly trained individuals can, whether they're indigenously trained or whether they're Western trained, 
you know, with the right training and the right guidance, people can reliably have these very, very powerful transformative experiences, whether it's with ketamine therapy or MDMA therapy or ayahuasca or psilocybin and, and many others. But the, the environment is not, the importance of the environment and the context of it is not to be understated because that is what really dictates whether or not somebody has a powerful, meaningful, positive life-changing experience versus a really hard, ex difficult experience. Got it. So this is, and you, you're using this clinically, like pe people are inducing these experiences clinically for healing. Yeah, predominantly with ketamine right now, okay. because ketamine is the only psychedelic medicine that's legal that's like, in it. almost every country worldwide, because it's used as an anesthetic for people oh, and animals. It's, a, it's one of the most gentle anesthetics that we have. And it was only discovered recently, or maybe like in the last 30 years to have psychedelic effects. Oh, wow. Okay. And so it kind of came in through like a back door that way. And now is has been found to be a very, very powerful antidepressant that you only need a few doses of compared to, it's not like daily dosing. You, yeah. You, yeah. You just do like you six do the, doses. Okay. Six doses, doses meaning like what, how long does a dose last? Hour and a half. Okay. So yeah. you have six sessions more or yeah, less? Yeah. Six, six sessions with therapy on both sides, okay. ideally, ideally to get best results. And then, and that therapy helps you take what comes up from those experiences. It helps you be prepared to go in for whatever comes up, knowing that number one, it's just you. There's nothing to be afraid of. Right. Number two, we, everybody comes back, you know, no matter how far out you think you go, everybody always comes back. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and number three, just to be grateful for the opportunity to see the medicine as a teacher that helps us to learn about ourselves more deeply. Um, and I would be so freaking out. I think I would be freaking out. <laughs> it's really, it's really quite gentle. It's okay. not, you know, and, and when we I do, mean, you hear about ayahuasca, you're like puking in the rainforest for like, it just sounds terrible. I'm like, who would do this? Why would you do this? I mean, but ketamine seems much, I guess, gentler. Are yeah, people all... like throwing up and you're, I feel like ayahuasca are really high for like two days and it just sounds like so intense you know every every psychedelic medicine has its different amount of time that it lasts and a different intensity of the experience so ayahuasca is like an eight hour six to eight hour experience lsd lsd is like eight to twelve psilocybin mushrooms are six to eight uh mdma is four to six ketamines one to one you know 60 to 90 minutes got it okay. and so ketamine has a lot of advantages because not only is it legally accessible and we can have a pharmacy literally just right, give us like clinical yeah. yeah clinical grade medicine that's reliable every time but it has a very short window that you can expose somebody to who's never had a psychedelic experience before to a very like gentle uplifting dream state that can be very healing and very peaceful and blissful. And that's usually what people experience. Are people just, like laying down? Where are you doing this? What percent of your practice is this? Like, give me the lowdown. Oh, um, well, I would say probably 70, you know, 70 percent of our clients come to us to do this kind of work with ketamine. Okay. Um, typically, we do it in, um, there's two ways to do it. You know, you can do it in an office. Uh, actually, three ways to do it. But yeah, you can do it in an office. You can do it in somebody's home or you can do it where you're there with them, or you can do it in somebody's home over Zoom um, with somebody else in the home. Because the experience, again, is so gentle. It's so low dose that it's really just at the threshold of 
psychedelic experience. So, Got it. you know, so we're really, you don't need to take people all the way out there to get the benefits. The benefits. People need to get just, just barely there. Okay. And then they just need to dip their toe in. And then once they dip their toe in, they can be like, okay, this is, this is actually not so bad, right? I'm not, Got I don't it. have as much to be afraid of. This isn't as scary as I thought it was going to be. Now I can adventure a little further. Interesting. Right. And cool. so, yeah, so, so there's lots of ways to deliver ketamine. Other psychedelic medicines right now are very challenging to deliver because they're not legal. Um, but ketamine is very versatile and, and it's safe to use at home as long as you have guidance from somebody who knows what they're so doing. So you're doing this with, for people like six sessions and then what are you seeing? Are people coming back to you a years later or for more? Are they feeling like, wow, that was just profoundly like that profoundly changed my life and I don't even feel depressed anymore. Like what are, what are the, what are you seeing? Yeah. I mean, it depends on the person and where they're starting out, right? Everybody starts out a different place. Some people come to us and they've done a ton of work already and they require like one or two ketamine sessions. Work already... meaning like psychotherapy or what is yeah, that like, mean? Yeah, like they've been in therapy for years. They've been doing the meditations. They've been doing mindfulness and they've been doing self-care, but they are just stuck, right? Got it. They, they, they're having trouble getting over a certain hump of their personal self-development. Those people tend to respond very quickly and can make radical progress to the point where we can do like one course of four to six sessions and then they're they don't need to come back they're they're good they're like on it right they've seen they've seen what it feels like to be in the driver's seat of their own lives and to know what it feels like to have that sense of control and and over their own thoughts and feelings and just they can take it from there so as a um, control freak maybe i would like this <laughs> i think you would <laughs> okay i think you would i mean yeah it's a, it, it just helps us to recognize if you think about this if you think about what you said about the control freak idea right? Just to break it down, yeah. feeling out of control or feeling anxious like or, or restless or like we have to control things comes from spending time thinking about things that we don't have control over. And when we have a lot of those things that surround us in our day-to-day -day lives, it probably is like 99% of things that surround us in our day-to-day -day lives or 90 to 99% are things that we can't actually change or impact in a meaningful way. There's things that are going to happen, other people, their thoughts, right? Things we have to do, certain things we have to do, certain things that are going on, the news, right? None of that stuff we have, for the most part, any control over. But what we do have, and, and so if we only have 100% of our time each day to spend thinking about anything, and we spend 60, 70, 80% of it thinking about things like the news and what other people think about us that we don't have any control over, then we're going to feel out of control 60, 70, 80% of the time. And then that's going to lead to us trying to grasp onto things that we can control or try to control uh, that can help to some extent, but it can also cause suffering because we can't control certain things and we try to control them and then we, we can't and we find out we can't. It feels futile. We feel helpless. We feel like, you know, it, it becomes a real struggle. And so that's why... The ancient practices of breathwork, meditation, mindfulness, movement, um, music, touch are so interesting because biologically, psychologically, they are the things we can do to remind ourselves that we're in control. We can always control our breath. We can always control our movement. We're not usually strapped down and restrained. We can always sing or choose to listen to music or play music, We can, and we can always... Uh, accept soothing touch either from ourselves or we can, you know, with consent, have a soothing touch experience with the loved one. And 
that those things instantly send a safety signal to our brains that reminds us that we're in control of how we feel in those moments, which then by paying attention to those things more of the time, we then start to feel more in control and our anxiety and restlessness and drive to control things in general just goes down because it reminds us, hey, there's these things we have control over. Let's identify more things like that and let's focus our attention on those things more of the time. Then we start to feel in control of our lives 8, 70, 80, 90% of the time. And that's when we really start to feel fulfilled and open up a lot more capacity to, to do cool stuff that we didn't necessarily know we could because when we feel in control, we're able to have a brighter, a, a broader window of view of opportunity, right? We're not just looking for what's the quickest way out of this uncomfortable situation or, or you know, feeling pressured all the time. We can actually take a breath and just look at everything that's in front of us and be like, okay, what's the actual best option for me right now if I were to weigh out all of these different things? And what's my intuition saying? Right? Yeah. Way to tap into more of that inner knowing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. God, so this sounds like it would be really beneficial for like high performers. I don't know. I struggle. Like you're saying this, I'm thinking like, man, people who are into like dieting, like I feel like that's just such a grasp for control. I see this with my kids. I'm like psychos. I try, I'm like really trying not to be crazy, but like, you know, my husband and I are like fighting over the weekend because I'm like, dude, like the sugar, you know, and I'm trying to control like everything they eat and the whole environment. And it's exhausting. I mean, it's like, it's It's exhausting. literally, it, it literally drains our energy. It's like, it's like an energy vampire. Like if you really want to think about it, like in a, in a, like, I honestly think that's what the vampire metaphor is is it's inviting things, thoughts into our lives, inviting things into our lives by paying attention to them that don't serve us or that we can't control. And when we invite those things into our attention by choosing to pay attention to them, they literally come in and then they take over our consciousness and they sap our entire energy because we can't do anything about them. So once we've let them in, we're just, you know, we, we go down that cycle, they're just sucking energy out of our of ourselves. So we can take control of that at any time with the simple mindfulness practice of let's focus on things we can control. And then over time, our brain stops letting the vampiric thoughts in at all. But it takes a little bit of practice. We didn't get here overnight. We've trained to do these kinds of thinking exercises for a really long time. And that's why Apollo is so helpful, right? Because Apollo helps us without having to remember to do that. Apollo just reminds us for us that we can take control of our attention, how we feel at any time. And it helps to retrain our bodies, start to enter those states of, of, of peak recovery in just a few moments and, and peak mindfulness in just a few moments that normally would take us a really long time to access. So again, it's not, a, it's not like an end-all and be-all for everything, but if you have never had success doing any of the techniques we're talking about today and you or you've struggled with them in the past and keeping them up, adding Apollo on can dramatically impact how quickly we learn these techniques because it gives you the felt experience of having a quiet mind in a stressful situation. And then all of a sudden getting there becomes a heck of a lot easier because you have a target to aim for. So cool. And do you see this like exercise? Is that one thing that like kind of does the same thing? I look at like, I'm thinking about people like I work with, right? Like Mark, Rick and I ran the company at Primal Kitchen and we had, you know, we grew fast. We had a lot of there's a lot of stress, right? But Rick, he he's like the duck that's just floating peacefully down the river. Mark too. Mark doesn't get real like, he's not like high and low. I was definitely the most probably emotional one on the roller coaster of this entrepreneurial journey. Like 
And I remember one time I was like crying in the parking lot outside after meetings. Crazy. It's a lot. lot, Yeah. Um, But mostly I could keep it together. I'm not like a total hothead, but, um, but Mark and Rick are very like calm, right? Like the ducks floating down the river, there might be like feet paddling quickly under the water, but you don't really see it. They're both endurance athletes. I wonder like how much of this, you know, just all, how much of that training, like can played into their ability to just Rick is like the most cool, calm, collected guy. I know he's also like biking like a hundred miles. I don't know, like every day. I don't know. I'm just curious. Oh, yeah. On that. Yeah, that hel- that's 100% right. I mean, it, obviously, exercise to an extreme will tax the body. But if you have trained yourself over time to build up to intense, regular exercise levels where you're, you know, biking 100 miles, you're, you know, you're, you're pushing the body in a healthy way, um, not just, you know, in, in, in with within reason, um, you're training resilience. You're you're going to see boosts in heart rate variability. You're going to see signs that the body is more calm more of the time because you've developed a physical outlet to take that restlessness that builds up in us over time and just get it out, right? Movement, however we do it, maybe it's not the 100-mile bike ride for everybody. Maybe it's yoga. Maybe it's going for walks, right? Maybe it's other stuff, but doing the even just a little bit of that daily or or nearly every day and having a pattern around that is incredibly helpful to regulating mood and and concentration and helping us get good sleep and if you look at the data around treatment of depression in particular just as one example exercise is more impactful than taking it in an antidepressant ssri in most in most people who have been studied and that's just testament to how Powerful, powerful these natural techniques are nothing yeah. is going to replace that yeah that's fascinating okay i know we're like almost short on time but i'm just so curious because you seem like i don't know you've just given a lot of thought as you would in your field but to like the meaning of life so i'm just curious how how are you defining the meaning of life and wh- where'd you go this dream thing i'm really interested in. i was obsessed with dreams when i was little i had like a journal i remember someone gave me a present it was like a dream interpreted my dreams and it came with this journal with a pen that had a little light on the end of it so I could like write in the middle of the night write down my dreams and I would wake up and look up like okay there was a wolf in my dream what does this mean yada yada like how do the dreams weigh in and where have you netted out on like the meaning of life those are big big questions but I'm curious Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) well so I think that the dream thing is really interesting because I think that we we know a lot more about dreams than we did before you know 20 30 years ago we know that dreams happen now predominantly during rem sleep stages and that during those sleep stages is when our is, is those are some of the deepest sleep stages so we have we're like sometimes completely paralyzed or completely physically vulnerable when we're in those sleep stages so number 1 to get even to even allow our bodies and our brains to enter those deep recovery stages of deep and REM sleep, we have to feel safe. So that's kind of lesson number one is that safety is at the foundation of all healing and all recovery. And because sleep is at the foundation of all recovery, if we're not getting good restful sleep, we're not going to, and we're not dreaming, or it doesn't matter whether we remember our dreams or not, but if we're not having deep restful sleep and entering those dream states, then we're not recovering well. And HRV is one way to track that. And and safety is required to get there and sleep is required to get to sleep and sleep is required for all healing that we do afterwards, all the lessons, everything we learn to actually stick on a solid foundation. So that's kind of like lesson number one. And the dreams for two, number two that I, I think I've learned are really that 
dreams are a psychedelic state that's naturally induced in our brains where a lot of our memory reconsolidation occurs and we have what's what's called like reconsolidation being a reorganization of our memory. So all the stuff that comes in from the last 24 hours or 48 hours in our short-term memory then has to get integrated into long-term memory and actually make sense. And how does it fit into that story, that longer-term story of our lives? What does it mean? How do we think about it? Is it worth thinking about more? Or is it just kind of something that gets filed away for later, right? And our brains do that when we're dreaming and in REM sleep. And so, um, so that, in a lot of ways, is our most natural, most commonly accessed psychedelic state. Um, and, we, and I think ketamine has really taught me a lot about this because ketamine therapy in, is actually for a lot of people, they will describe it as inducing a dream state for a certain amount of time, like a lucid dream state where you're, you're kind of, you're more, you know, conscious in it, but you're still in what feels like a dream. And that's really, really interesting because those states are very, very healing for people. Um, and what I've learned from my practice with these medicines, with tools like Apollo and, you know, helping, helping treat patients in this area, I think is that, you know, we, with respect to the, to the meaning of life effectively is that we can't tell people the meaning, you know, even if we just, it's a very personal thing, right? The meaning of life is, is not something that like is easy to really articulate in general that makes it understandable and applicable to everyone because it's so personal. And a lot of it, if we really want to think about it, you know, and cause we help, you know, in our clinic, like we're helping people find this all the time. Like they come to us because they've lost meaning right? They've tried everything and they've lost meaning and they don't know where to get it from. And so what we do, interestingly enough, is we help them look inside themselves to find that meaning. And when they, people actually feel safe enough to actually, actually look inside themselves and to actually ask themselves a question, like, what does this mean to me? And, and what really excites me? Then what people eventually find out, it might not be right away, it might take some time, but what people eventually find out is that the meaning of life is actually the process of discovering what we're capable of in this life, right? It's not that there is, and, and that's personal. So what you might be capable of in this life for you may be very different than what I'm capable of in this life for me. But the whole process of discovering that is the journey that we're all here to enjoy together. And so the more that we can help each other feel safe enough and be in a nourishing, fertile environment for growth and self-discovery that's non-judgmental, right? Then the more that we can actually foster our each other's mutual growth and self-exploration and self-discovery and our own connection to discovering the meaning of life for ourselves, which is our potential. And I think that's where the future of medicine is going. That's where the biohacker space is going. Like that's where, like, I think the work that you guys are doing converges really nicely with the work that, that we're doing in mental health and, you know, how we can really start to take some of these discoveries in neuroscience and bring them back to the community so that any, everybody can understand how to access them in simple ways and, and really, you know, find out for yourself, like, what are you capable of? Gosh, I'm so inspired. I want to like, I want to start my ketamine therapy. I mean, wearing my Apollo Neuro every day. I'm just like, this is, this is great. Um, okay, we're out of time, but I have one question I ask everyone at the end of the podcast, but what's something most people don't know about you? I really like to cook. 
um, cooking and um, cooking is like a, it's like, there's like a rhythm to the kitchen. That's like really magical about, you know, preparing your own food that, you know, and, and really learning how to like master that. I mean, I, I wouldn't call myself a master cook, but I enjoy cooking and I had to learn because I am, you know, lactose intolerant that cooking for me also became something that was really interesting because I had, I could learn how to do it for myself at home. And now um, it's become something that's like a huge passion for me. Uh, and it's extremely rewarding. And I, you know, I, I never really thought that that was something that I would just find as rewarding as I do. But, um, you know, it's something that has become really, really exciting and has helped me to eat better and to feel better and to just, again, thinking of things we can control. One of those things also is nutrition in a lot of ways and what we put into our bodies. And the act of nourishing our bodies with good quality food or fuel is something that I think really surprised me as to how impactful it was in the way that I felt on a regular basis. I know you guys talk about that a lot too. So yeah, so that's, that's something that I'm really interested in. And, and I just think there's a, I really love rhythm. You know, I love rhythm. I think there's a huge rhythm in the kitchen of the way, like the timing of the food. And that's something I never learned growing up. Um, I learned that from my wife um, who cooks Italian food. And, you know, she really introduced me to like how to time food and cooking properly to really make it come out you know, the way it was intended. And, um, and that timing is similar in music and it's similar in dance. And it's really like this, it's this interesting idea of like, try to find the rhythm, right? Try to find the rhythm of life. Try to find everything we do as humans is on a rhythm. It's either on a 12 hour cycle or a day, you know, a day and night rhythm or a monthly moon lunar rhythm, or it's a heart rhythm or a breath rhythm. And, and, you know, try to, try to find and surround yourself with the rhythms that really, make you feel the best and, and understand those rhythms. And that, um, for me has been really impactful in, in my life. I love it. Surfing and tennis to my two rhythm things. But anyway, thank you so much. It was so great to have you on here. Um, can you let everyone know where they can find you so they can follow up with your work? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'd love to hear from you. I'm on socials, Instagram and Twitter at Dr. David Rabin. I'm on Clubhouse at Dr. Dave and have a, a psychedelic news show called The Psychedelic Report on Clubhouse. And you can check us out live almost every Thursday um, or you can uh, from, at 2 p.m. Pacific or you can check us out on uh, po uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify um, at The Psychedelic Report. And you can also find me at drdave.io. And if you're interested in checking out Apollo, you can go to apolloneuro.com or wearablehugs.com will also work. Wearable hugs, so cute. <laughs> and your practice is, are you guys taking new patients or? Yeah, we have. Yeah, we are taking What's patients. What's the name of your practice? Um, you can find it on my website, the drdave.io website, or if you go to apollo.clinic, our practice is called the Apollo Clinic, so you can find us there too. So great. Thank you for all the wonderful work you're doing in this field. Appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you so much, Morgan. It's a pleasure. Okay. Okay.